So the prodigal son wanted the father's stuff, but he didn't really want the father. That's what we saw last week. We started looking at Jesus' parable of the prodigal son that he told. The Pharisees, again, we need to keep our eye on the main point. They were upset that these sinners were coming to Jesus and Jesus was receiving them. Jesus told them three parables. He told them about the lost sheep. And the shepherd looks to find them and he is filled with joy when they return. He gave a parable about a lost coin that this woman looked diligently for it, and when she found it, there was great rejoicing. And here, in this parable, there is a lost son. And we're going to see here, what is the attitude, the heart of this father when the son that had been wandering in the far country returns? So, I said last week it was the main point was he wanted the father's stuff, but he didn't want the father. We're calling this one a tale of two hearts. I'll leave you in a little bit of suspense to figure out which two hearts are we talking about, because there's different ways we could, we could think about this, because there's, there's more than two people in this story. It's not just the prodigal son and the father. So let's go back. Let's do a recap of uh, the first part that we talked about last week, so we can get a running start talking about the passages for today. So I invite you to Turn in scripture to Luke chapter 15, and we'll start with verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And we said last week, this would have been a huge insult to the father. You weren't supposed to get your inheritance until... The father passed away. This is like the son saying to him, I wish you were dead. I wish you would get out of the way. I want your stuff. I want my inheritance. Don't really want you. In fact, I want to take this and I want to get as far away as here that I can. Uh, I don't like your rules. I don't like living under your roof. But the far country seems to have all kinds of pleasures. And, and that's where I'm going. I want your stuff. I want the goods. But I want the pleasures that are out there. I don't want you. That was, that was his heart. That was the core of this. In the core of this problem. But it says, the father, he divided it between them. It's verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had. He sold it off and turned it into cash and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And this would have been, at this point, just a shameful outcome. Uh, This would have been considered, even for the Gentiles, just a lowly, lowly task. But for a Jew, pigs were unclean. He had sunk to the the bottom through his reckless living and, and rejecting the father. And this is a situation that he was in. But while he's there in the pigsty... He, he comes to his senses. The Lord helps him to, to realize, what am, I, what am I doing? It says in verse 16, And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Even pig food looked like it would be good, but he couldn't even have that. No one helped him. Verse 17, But when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, he said, Wait, how many of my father's hired servants 
have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So last week we saw a few things. We saw that he wanted the father's stuff. He didn't want the father. We saw that living for himself, he wasted away everything that he had. His father's stuff, his, his share of the inheritance, which as the younger brother would have been a third of everything. He wasted it away in just reckless, reckless living. Rejecting the father led to a life of ruin and shame. But then finally, this turning point happens. He hits rock bottom. In coming to his senses, he realizes that his only hope was returning to his father. And this is where we pick up the story again. So I want to say a few things here, because we're going to compare two hearts. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about the prodigal son's return. And it mentions this in verse 20. It says, And he arose and came to his father. And then we're going to talk about what happens when he does the father's response to this. But I think one of the things that we, can, that we need to draw from this a little bit further is what does it mean to turn back to the father? What does it mean to have true repentance? In each of these stories, it, it talked about this word repentance and what does it mean? And there's some that, that don't like this word. To some, it uh, conjures up this idea that you're working for your salvation or you've got to clean up your life first. That's not what this is about. That would be a wrong way to understand it. But there is something to be said that this is a, a turning away from our sin. It is and turning to the Lord. The word for repentance uh, literally means a change of mind, but it is not merely something intellectual. This is something that also changes our heart. It changes, and it's going to flow out into action when this is something that is real. It's not just mere remorse or feeling bad about your situation. There's a lot of people that hit rock bottom and they feel bad about it and they promise their, their spouse or their family they're going to change. But it's not necessarily godly remorse. It's, they're bad about the situation. They're upset about the consequences. But that's different than when, when our hearts are changed and turned to the Lord. So a big difference between these things. So repentance, it, it, it does include a turning of the heart and the mind. That's part of what repentance is. But again, it's not just an intellectual thing. There's a change of the heart and mind about, about reality, about the situation that he's in. I mean, he thought, I can go to the far country and I can live it up and this will give me my great life. This will bring me joy. Sin seems really good. And he came to the end of himself. He realized, this, this is bankrupt. What I'm doing here, this just leads to sin and destruction. This is, I, I, I'm wasting everything that I've been given. I'm wasting my life. I'm wasting all of the Father's gifts. It is said that true repentance always begins with an accurate assessment of one's own position. We see in his heart, there, there is brokenness. He doesn't try to, to make excuses. He's not just blaming this on the, the famine and things. He just had some bad luck, otherwise things would have went well. We see also there's a, a change in his heart and mind about his sin, about his accountability. 
he recognizes, I have sinned against my Father. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against heaven. And that's one thing that we need to realize. When there is genuine repentance, that it's, it's not just that we've sinned against people around us. We've, we've offended God. We've done what is wrong in, in the Lord's sight. And we recognize in our heart that's not okay. We recognize in our heart that that's a bad thing. And it, it, it grieves us, a genuine sense of grief. He realized his own personal unworthiness because of his sin. There's an appropriate level that we need to understand that. I think some people that think, I'm going to turn to God, but they don't necessarily really believe that they got it coming. They just think, well, I don't want to go to hell. I'm actually a pretty good person, but God, you know, come into my heart, whatever, save me. But they don't really, they've never really come to grips with the fact that we're sinners. The wages for sin is death, and that, that's spiritual death. That's, that's what I deserve. That's what scripture says that we all deserve. That needs, that needs to sink home. That's, that's the hard truth. That's the, the bad news of the gospel that needs to come first. But we need to realize the serious situation that we are in. And he also had a, a change of heart and mind about his father. Whereas before, the father, he probably had every excuse in the book why the father was terrible. And telling him what to do and all of this. And he realized, wait a second, my father's a good man. Even his servants have, have plenty to eat. What have, what have I been doing? And that's part of the change in heart and mind, the repentance for us as well. We used to view sin as good and sin is the answer. And at salvation, when we repent, we like, no, this is bad. I need to be saved from this and from uh, the, the, what I have common because of this. And I, I need to turn to God. And God is no longer awful. I got to stop running from God. This is my only hope. God is, is good. He is my father. You know, the blinders come off and we realize this God that we've been running from is who we need to be running to instead. He was willing to, seeing his father good, trusting in his mercy, willing to come under his authority. You know, when it's mere remorse, people still tend to be running away from God. But when there's genuine repentance... People turn their back on, on sin and they turn to God instead. John MacArthur says this. He says, That is how repentance works. First of all, the sinner comes to himself and to his senses. He begins to look at reality and assess where he is. He realizes he is headed inevitably towards death and destruction and eternal damnation. He cannot keep going in the same direction. So he turns to the father whom he has dishonored. Having spent a lifetime hiding, he now wants only to be in the father's presence. He is therefore willing to acknowledge his own guilt and to bear the shame of it. He is willing to do anything he possibly can do to honor the one he has so dishonored. But something also tells him that he can cast himself on the father's mercy, forgiveness, and love. And find some measure of acceptance. This is the flip side of true repentance. And it is the very essence of saving faith. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. When When we turn to God in faith, trusting in him, we're also turning away from from our sin and the things that displease God. Which is a lesson also we can get out of this. Because sometimes in we hear the, the parable of the prodigal son, and if, you, if we just take from this that you know, God doesn't care what you do, 
that God, um, he'll, he, he'll accept you no matter what, and so just come to him and it doesn't matter about your life. One of the things we, we realize about this story is that in order for the son to, to come home, it, it meant not being in the pigsty anymore. That these two things, being with the father and, and being in the pigsty, uh, these, these are two different directions. These are incompatible. You can't return to the father and stay in the pigsty at the same time. Now it's true, God loves you just as you are. That's the flip side of this. But God loves you so much that he isn't going to just leave you in the pigsty. Because that's not where he is. He wants you to return to him and to fellowship with him. And you're not going to have the fellowship with him that you are designed for, that he wants you to have, that he wants to have with you if you're just unrepentant living in this life of sin. And so to say, well, I just, I got my get out of hell free card. I trusted Jesus, but I'm just going to stay in my sin and do what I want to do. And I'm going to stay just in control of my life and I'm going to sin all I want. Thank you very much. But thank you for uh, dying on the cross and I don't have to go to hell. But here I am in sin and, and, and the pigsty and mud and whoo, it's all fun. That's, that's not God's plan for us. That doesn't work. When we're saved, we, we have a heart that, is, it, that turns away from this and says, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to be where my father is. I want to be where in his presence, in his love with him. And that's not with the pigsty. Because if you're in love with a pigsty and you want to stay there forever, that's not going to work. I mean, eventually when we leave this life and we're in heaven, all the pigsty stuff is going to be gone for good. If that's your true love in the pigsty, you're going to be cut off from your true love. The Father's love is way better than anything the pigsty has to offer you. But let me say this as well, to balance this out too. That repentance is not cleaning yourself up perfectly before you turn to the Father. Because that's another mistake that someone could make. Thinking, well, I'm here, I'm in all this sin, I have all this. I'm too embarrassed to turn to the Lord. I'm too embarrassed to go to God and ask for forgiveness. And so I gotta just, I better get my life perfect before I come to him. Before I even crack a Bible or show up at church or pray or think about him or ask for forgiveness, nope, I better clean myself up. I better get myself spotless. I better take off these rags and somehow uh, get some way to have really nice clothes so I can impress him. That's not how it works. God comes for us. He saves us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us, Scripture says. And so we we, we come to him, but he doesn't expect us to have this all cleaned up. With the prodigal son, while he's returning to the father, he still he didn't have a change of clothes. He had nothing. If he didn't have food, anything for food, he didn't have a way to get a change of clothes. He came still pretty messed up. You know, maybe he found a lake or something he could jump in, or who knows, uh, a little bit. But he's, I'm sure he stank. I'm sure he had pig gunk all over him still in places. And it was not a pretty thing. Tattered rags that he's wearing. But that's how he was received back by the Father. So salvation by works is impossible. You're not going to be able to clean up yourself enough to come to the Lord. That's not how salvation works, and it's impossible. And the Father will help you get cleaned up in time. Come to him first. So to sum this up, yeah, the prodigal had a changed mind and attitude about his sin and the Father's goodness. If the prodigal was, he was not required to clean himself up perfectly before returning, 
He returned in dirty rags and empty-handed, acknowledging his sin before man and God, accepting blame, submitting to the Father's authority, and casting himself on the Father's mercy. I told you this is a parable of two hearts. And actually, when I talk about this, I'm not comparing the two brothers. And you could do that, and there's some great comparisons we could have because uh, we can all find ourselves, see ourselves in one of these two brothers. But the way I want to look at this is comparing the first heart I want to look at is the heart of the father. Let's look at the father and his return. How he responds to the son when he returns. And actually you can see where his heart is even before the son returns. Let's read here verse 20. And he arose, the prodigal, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And bring a ring and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And it says, and they began to celebrate. We talk about the father's heart here. And we say the father's heart, his heart was filled with grace and joy. I wrote this originally. I almost said forgiveness and joy. But I realized that's not quite strong enough. Because it's more than just forgiveness. Because you could say, okay, I forgive you about this. Wipe the slate clean. That's, that's how it is. But you realize that the father in this story and our heavenly father, what he gives us is way beyond mere forgiveness. I mean, it would be great enough just to wipe the slate clean of all our sins. But he goes, he goes way beyond mere forgiveness. And that's what grace is. Just forgiveness or mercy, that's when we don't get what we do deserve. We don't get the punishment. We don't get the condemnation that we do deserve. Grace is the other side of this. That's when we get what we don't deserve. We get the goodness. We get the, the, the blessings. We get the love that is, is far beyond what we could even possibly deserve. We've deserved the opposite. We deserve punishment. He doesn't give us that. Instead, he gives us these awesome, amazing, lavish blessings. Sometimes we talk about the Father's love being unconditional. Really, that doesn't even go far enough. His, his love is, is counter-conditional. What we have done is done something that deserves sin, but he has done, he gives us the opposite of what we do deserve. And we look at this passage, we can see all these characteristics of, of the Father's love. We see in the, uh, in the father of the story. First we see the father, it says he rose, he came to the father, but while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. Realize what this must mean? The father was watching. Who knows how long it had been? But the father was, was still longing and, and, and looking for his son. That he was constantly looking out, just that waiting for the day that the son would come over the hill in the distance, and that he would see him. 
The father was continually watching. It shows his love, his, his longing. He never gave up. It says his father saw him and felt compassion, and he ran. And what it says that, that he ran, this is a bigger deal than we might think. Because, well, let me say this. The way that uh, people could have expected the father to respond, the way probably the Pharisees and many others if you had a son that acted in this way, that had sinned in this way, brought shame to, and disgrace to the father, it would have not been unusual that even if the, the son had wandered home, that the father just refused to see him. I will not talk to him. I will not see him. Send him away. I don't even want to see his face. And the people in their society, they would have expecting, yep, that's probably how it goes. Or even if you did come to see him, well, you can come if you are willing to, to, to beg and maybe wait and uh, maybe after several days of begging and, and pleading that maybe I'll have mercy on you. That would have been the expectation. But the opposite here, we see the father, he, he runs towards him. In that society, in those days, grown men did not run. That was something that, that youth did. It was especially considered undignified for wealthy older men to run. You just didn't do that. I mean, as a, a wealthy older man, he would, have had, he would have had robes. And this would have been considered undignified and, and goofy looking. He would have to take his robes up quick and kind of wrap them around his waist, having his uh, old man legs here, everyone to see, and just you know, running out there to, to see his, his son. He probably hadn't ran in decades. Who knows the type of shape or condition this guy was in? He wasn't doing Iron Man. Uh, <clears throat> but you know, the word for this, ran, is usually a word that's reserved for foot, foot races. And think about this. This was a full-out run. This wasn't a short little sprint. Because it's while the sun was still far off, he sees him. So this was a long run that he did booking it as fast as he could to, to meet his son, to intercept him, to get to him as far as he can as soon as he saw that that son had came over whatever distant hill that he had, he had came over. In addition, what are the father's motives? Obviously there was love. Obviously there was a longing for his son. Probably part of this too was that he was trying to spare his son shame. Because if the son had returned to the family and to the, to the village, everyone knew about this. And everyone would have considered that this son had shamed the father, shamed their family, shamed their community. And the expectation was that they should shun this son, that they should heap condemnation on him, treat him poorly. This would not have been a warm reception. This would have been a, they would have been heaping shame on him. So I think part of what the father was doing is, is getting out there to intercept him as well because he wanted to be with him, but he also wanted to make sure that he could take care of this before everyone else in town got to him. That he could signal to everyone else, this is okay, I've accepted my son back. Whatever you think of it, I've accepted him back. And we are going to receive him with joy. This is what I want. Don't think that you need to shame this son because you think that's what's going to please me. No, I accept him. I want you to see this. This was something that was done in public for everyone, everyone to see. He runs, it gets, he gets to him, says he embraced him. The father's in his, his robes, his, 
his clothing. He embraces his, his stinky pig filth son because he doesn't care about that right now. He'll take care of that later. He embraces him and says that he kissed him. And the way this is worded in Greek, that it's not just one kiss, he kept on kissing him. He was so glad to, to see him. Uh, the preacher Charles Spurgeon said once, preach a seven-point sermon just on the phrase that, that the father kissed the son. He says it reveals, he said at least seven things. It reveals, one, much love, much forgiveness, a full restoration, exceeding joy, overflowing comfort, strong assurance of salvation, and intimate communion with his beloved son. We see here the son, he's able to get a few words out. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So he's acknowledging his sin. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But remember, he had rehearsed more. He was going to do this whole repayment plan. Make me like one of your servants. And, and this idea, oh, I guess I'll pay you back. And before he could get to that, the father just cuts him off. He isn't going to let him say this at all. The father stops the son before he could tell about his repayment plan. See, the father does not allow for a salvation in which the prodigal thinks he is paying off his own debts. The father is not going to allow that because that's not how salvation works. You know, we don't come to him thinking, I'm, I'm going to turn, I'm going to make a new leaf and I'm going to make it right, Lord God. I realize I've sinned against you, but I'm going to make it right no matter how long it takes. That would never work. Even if you could stop sinning now and live perfectly the rest of your life, we're not going to pay off the debt of sin that we have. Every sin that we've committed is against an infinitely holy God. We can't pay off that debt. It's, it's beyond our ability. And, and God doesn't want anyone to have this idea that well, you can just pay this off. As Christians, the life that we live to God isn't to, to repay him in the sense that we can pay it off and now we're even. It's in response to what he has done because our hearts are changed and have love to him, but it's not to pay him back. So I think the father here, he's indicating that's, that's not how it works. He was received back by the father before the son could do any good work. The father wasn't going to let him think he was earning his way back. And we see here that the father's grace is just lavish. The amount of grace, good that he does for him, is just amazing. You know the prodigal? So this is called the, the prodigal son because the word prodigal can mean reckless living. It can refer to that, to reckless spending. And that's one definition of it. And that's why sometimes the prodigal son is called the, the prodigal son. Actually, the, word, the English word prodigal can also mean just lavish spending or lavish giving. And so it can mean extravagant spending. So there's one author, actually Tim Keller, that his book on the prodigal son, he actually calls it the prodigal God. Not that the God has wandered away, because that's not what prodigal means. But he's saying, if you think of it as meaning lavish spending, he says, look at the, the lavish spending, the grace that is given by the father to this undeserving son. <clears throat> says he gives him his robe. It literally means a first-rank garment. This would have been what the nobleman would have worn. This is for their special occasions, probably the father's. And it's, it's being given to the son, put over him to, uh, 
cover his, uh, his, his shame. I mean, he can't return wearing uh, this pig clothing. He needs something else to be put on him. Something that, It's not from him, but to be clothed in something else. He's given a ring. A signet ring was a symbol of authority. You would use it to sign your documents, put it, pressing it into the wax. So he was given authority again. He's given shoes. His shoes are, are worn out. Slaves went without shoes, but not masters, not sons. And then it talks about the fatted calf. And this is something that, from this parable, people talk about this, killing the fatted calf. You know, in, in those days, it was rare to eat meat. You didn't have grocery stores. You didn't have uh, things that we have. And um, eating meat of any kind, really, was a special occasion. Most people, they didn't have that every single day. Uh, that was rare. But, but the, the fatted calf, this would have been an extremely rare thing. And something that probably only the wealthy had or could afford. This wasn't just a good-sized calf. What they would do with this, this would be a special calf that was set aside. It was kept... Um, intentionally from doing a lot of exercise, so gain a lot of weight. It would have been fed a special grain-fed uh, diet so that it's uh, having lots of very good, very good meat, very good food. Uh, it would have been very expensive to raise one of these. In fact, even a wealthy family probably would not have more than one of these at, at a time. They would probably start raising a fatted calf because, remember, it was still a calf. They're eating while it's still young and and tasty and delicious. Um, sorry for any vegetarians here. Uh, <clears throat> but they're going to eat uh, this at a certain time. So probably they had a feast in mind. Maybe a wedding or some kind of banquet. And they're preparing it for this. But the father is saying, no, something more important has happened. We're going to use this fatted calf now. It says that the average five-month veal calf would weigh some 500 pounds. This would be able to feed hundreds of people. The son's return was, was worth killing this fatted calf. And it was joy. There was celebration. And notice it says they began to celebrate. See, this is how God, this is how the father in this story received the prodigal home. This is how God wants to receive you home as well. If you are wandering in the far company, far country, if you are away from him, if you're thinking, I cannot come to the Lord, he won't receive me. No, this is how he wants to receive you. This is what is being offered to you. Now, is this the end of the story? You say, well, this is great. He's made it back. No, it isn't because there, there's more. And really, we, we don't get the main point of the story unless we see the other part here. And this other part has to do with the elder brother. Let's read the conclusion, starting with verse 25. It says, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things mean. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a, a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who 
who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he, the father, said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. These are the two hearts that I think the Lord wants us to compare here as well. Is not just the two brothers, but the father's heart and the heart of this eldest son. The father's heart was filled with grace, with compassion, with love, with forgiveness, with joy. The elder brother's son said he was filled with, his heart was filled with legalism, with resentments. Now let me say this. The prodigal son is received back, you know, and all is forgiven. And the point that we get from this, and I want to say this because there's people here that they haven't wandered into the far country. There's young people here. There's kids, okay? And there's choices that you have to make, okay? And the Lord will receive you back if there's times where you wander or you stray, yes. But, you know, it, it is good to avoid reckless living, Let's just say that up front too. There's a lot that the Lord hopes he can spare you from. It is good to avoid reckless living. There are things that if you take seriously in life, it'll save you a lot of pain. A lot of society's ills would be changed if people would take some of these things seriously. Some simple things, stay in school. Work diligently to prepare yourself for a career. Save sexual intimacy until you're married. And choose your spouse well and then be faithful to your spouse and children. And say no to substances or drugs or activities that will impart your judgment, your motivation, and lead to costly addictions. A lot of lives are really shipwrecked because of some decisions. It is good to avoid reckless living, and we hope that you do. It's good to avoid reckless living, but that won't keep you from being lost. Because you could still live the the picture-perfect life that on the surface would bring mom and dad so much joy and their kids are walking straight down the line and they're avoiding sins and they're making mom and dad proud and everything that you do is just, they could put it on Facebook and brag about it and be so happy. But you could still be lost. That's the problem here with this elder brother. The elder brother in this story, he was also lost, but in a different way. He was lost not by wandering, not by being doing bad things. He was lost by... You can say by, by being good. He was depending on his works, his goodness for his standing with the Father. He wasn't depending on the Father's grace, his goodness. He probably he didn't believe in grace. He really thought he had done everything right. He was deceived in that. I'm sure he hadn't done everything right, but he thought he had. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. And he's speaking to all of us, if we have a heart that is like the Pharisees, depending on our goodness, to think we're right with God because of that, or we can look down on other people because we're so good. We've lived the squeaky clean lives, and I can't believe that you sinner would show up here to church. You think God's just going to forgive you? Yeah, he is going to because he forgave us too. That's who he is. The elder brother, he didn't care about his father's joy. He was a rebel, but in his own way. He looked good on the surface, but really his heart was wandering away. In a way, he also, he, 
didn't really want the father. He wanted the father's goods. Give me the goat so I can go celebrate with, with you, dad? No, with my friends. Not with you. So many times when people are just trying to be good, they're doing it to manipulate the father, and that's what this elder brother was doing. And that's what a lot of churchgoers oftentimes can be doing too. We need to search our hearts as well. Tim Keller in his book, The, uh, the Prodigal God, he tells, he tells a story about a gardener who came before the king and said to the king, he presented him with a carrot and said, King, I have grown the biggest, most perfect carrot that I have ever grown or will ever grow. And out of my love and respect to you, I want to give you this carrot. And the king sees this and he perceives this gardener's heart and he accepts the carrot and thanks him. And as the gardener turns to leave, the king says, wait, come here. I see that you are a good steward of the ground. And I own a large plot of land next to yours. And I I freely give it to you now for you to take care of this and and for you to tend this. And thank you for what what you have given to me. One of the noblemen sees this going on and says, if that's what you get for a carrot... You know, what are you going to get if if you give him something really good? So the next day, this nobleman comes before the king with this beautiful black stallion, this horse, and says to the king, my king, I breed horses, and this is the most beautiful, the best horse, the most perfect horse I have ever bred or will ever breed. And out of my love and my respect for you, I give you this stallion. And he gave the stallion to the king. The king thanked him. The man turned to leave and the king just let him go. And so this nobleman is kind of perplexed. And he turns to find out what's going on. And the king says to him, You see, the gardener was giving me the carrot but you were giving yourself the horse. So many times, if we live a good life, but we're doing it to earn God's favor, to think that we are being good and we can manipulate God, we can earn him, we're coming the wrong way. Keller writes, the elder brother is not losing his father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. It is not his sin that creates the barrier between him and the father. It is pride he has in his moral record. That's who he's cut off. He was lost because he he had pride in his supposed moral goodness. He excluded himself. He kept himself from going into the joy of the father. He didn't join in the party. Don't let a cold, legalistic heart keep you from the father and from his joy. There are different ways to miss out on God. Yes, the shipwrecked life of the younger son and the self-righteous life of the older son both keep people away from the father. They both wanted the father's stuff but not the father, but were trying to get it in different ways. And really both of them were lost. And so both of them had different hearts seeing the, the prodigal son return. The father is filled with grace and joy and goodness 
And the whole point of this is saying that if we understand the gospel, that should be the rejoicing that we have as well, both when we're saved, but as we see other people that are lost, for them to be found, we need to rejoice with the Father that we should be glad. The son, the older son, he was filled with resentment because he saw that his plans weren't working out. He wasn't getting the manipulation tactic, uh, wasn't working the way that he wanted. All his squeaky clean living didn't seem to be paying off for him. He also probably thought to himself, you know, that sh- all this uh, celebration, whose inheritance is this coming out of now? That's coming out of mine. And he loved that more than he loved this, his brother who was returning. But you know, this parable kind of finishes with an un, as an unfinished story, with an unfinished ending. What would happen? It doesn't tell us at the end what the older brother's response is. Does he change his mind? Does he enter the father's joy with the other son? Or does he turn away? Remember, the main point of this is to tell us about he was talking to the Pharisees. And we know eventually what their response is. They turned and killed Jesus Christ. They put him on the cross. This parable, it isn't meant to say everything there is to say about salvation. You know, there's, there isn't a real mention of the cross here, about atonement. Um, someone might ask, is this parable really teaching that God will accept anyone back without a price being paid? No, because parables aren't meant to communicate everything there is to say. And also because I think there is something else that's hinted at in here. Because when we talk about the, the elder brother that, that failed, it causes us to think about how the elder brother should be. It causes us to think about the, the, the true elder brother. And one thing that we need to realize is that when we were wandering off, the rest of the Bible tells us it's not just that God the Father sat and waited for us to come. The Father sent our true elder, elder brother, the true son, into the far country to come and find us. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is the, he's the true elder brother that went into the far country to, to bring the lost one home so that we could be saved. I'm going to close in prayer. Now, if you've been wandering away, whether you've been wandering in the far country or if you've been at home the whole time but you're lost because you've been clinging to your self-righteousness, this is time for you to come home, for you to, for you to turn to God and, and to trust in his grace and mercy alone that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you to trust in that and to receive his forgiveness into his waiting arms. And you can receive him right where you are. We'll have people in the East Overflow room if you would like to talk to someone for prayer, to talk about your salvation. But uh, Pastor Nick, my wife will be in there as well. They would be glad to talk to you more about being received by the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this parable and everything that it teaches us. Thank you for what you've said to us. For any here that are like the the prodigal son that are in the far country, Lord, 
Lord, grant us hearts right now that, that, that turn from our sin, that we don't want this anymore. We want your love. We see you in a new way. Help us to cast ourselves on your grace and mercy. And Lord, anyone here that's far from you because they're, they're legalists, depending on their own goodness, and therefore have hearts of resentment, Lord God, bring those types of lost sons home as well. Lord, help anyone here that doesn't know you as Savior to just cry out to you and to admit and say to you honestly from their heart, Lord, I believe that I am a sinner. I've sinned against others and most of all, I've sinned against you. And I do not deserve your forgiveness. I do not deserve salvation. My heart is torn because of this. But Lord, I believe that you sent your son into this world. Jesus Christ, the God-man into this world to do what I couldn't. Lord, I believe that he lived a perfect life. I believe that he died on the cross for my sin. To pay for me. And that he rose again and is alive forever. Lord, I cast myself on your mercy based on what Jesus Christ has done for me. Please receive me back. I trust in you, your grace alone. Lord, all of us who have received you that have been embraced back, thank you for this. Let us live in joy because of your deep and great love. In the name of Christ our Savior, we pray. Amen.